I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Know Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. To learn more about Know Before, visit knowbefore.com. Roger, welcome. Always great to be speaking with you. Agreed. And thanks to everybody who shows up to hear us to talk each week. <laughs> yes, big thanks to everyone. And first topic for us this week, Roger, Riot Games announced last week that they had been compromised via some variation of what they stated was a social engineering attack. And then this past Tuesday of this week, they received a ransom email, which Vice's motherboard was able to obtain a copy of. And the first paragraph of the ransom, I'll read it. It just reads as follows. It's longer, the the ransom note, but just the first paragraph. Dear Riot Games, We have obtained your valuable data, including the precious anti-cheat source code and the entire game code for League of Legends and its tools, as well as Pac-Man, your user mode anti-cheat. We understand the significance of these artifacts and the impact their release to the public world would have on your major titles, Valorant and League of Legends. In light of this, we are making a small request for an exchange of $10 million. Now... I'm not a gamer, and I actually had very little awareness until recently of how far gaming has come since the the days of Diablo, which is what I remember in my childhood. But obviously, it's a hugely profitable industry. So, Roger, is $10 million a small ransom request, as they mentioned? And additionally, you know, what's at stake here if Riot Games doesn't pay? And do you know anything else about the attack? I'm going to open it up to you now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I don't know what Riot Games will do, but I think there's a good chance they won't pay the 10 million. 10 million is a pretty big ransom. It's not unheard of. You know, it used to be, you know, $100,000 was big and then a million was big. I think these days you see a lot of million, multi-million dollar ransom requests and $10 million is not that unusual. But I think, you know, it's been interesting, the what I call kind of ransomware 2.0, which is this data exfiltration And, you know, sometimes they encrypt the internal data, causing system downtime and interruption. But a lot of times they're just, you know, taking the data and saying, if you don't pay us, we're releasing this information. That started like at the end of 2019, the what I call ransomware 2.0, this data exfiltration, password exfiltration, extortion, you know, because a lot of people are starting to get really good backups finally because of ransomware. And so a lot of people stopped paying. So this data exfiltration technique became more common since then, since 2019, it has really accelerated. And so now you have a lot of ransomware gangs that aren't even encrypting at all. It's just data exfiltration and you pay us or release the data. And let me say for quite a while, a lot of companies were paying, especially the ones that got encrypted and the data exfiltrated, they were paying. And more often they were paying, I think, for two reasons, to prevent the exfiltrated data from being posted publicly and just to decrease the risk at the same hacking group, ransomware group would break back into them, you know, peace of mind. (laughs) But a lot of the places weren't accepting the ransomware guy's key to decrypt their data. They didn't trust that. But it seems over the last year, that I'm seeing a ton of stories where the people that are threatened with data exfiltration are not paying. And in most cases, the hackers are following through and posting that information publicly. It would probably take further analysis to see what damage it's causing to the company. But in a lot of cases, it's not causing, you know, at least what I can tell anecdotally, it's not causing a lot of damage. 
Although sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes some of the information that's released could be trade secrets, or I think that like releasing confidential emails, embarrassing emails would be a big deal. That happened in the Sony picture hack a bunch of years ago. North Korea broke into Sony pictures and exfiltrated a lot of stuff, data films. So there was actually entire films that were released publicly by the North Koreans. But on top of that, they released a bunch of embarrassing emails where internal employees, vice presidents were dissing two of their most major stars. I think it was Angelina Jolie and um, not Chris Rock, but another comedian. I think it led to Angelina Jolie leaving Sony Pictures and, and certainly led to embarrassment for the other star. You know, I don't think any company, my company wouldn't want its emails exfiltrated because, you know, there's a way that you talk about customers externally and then a way you talk about them internally, you know, where you might say this customer's asking for something unfair or can you believe this or, you know, I can't believe that. Or maybe you're even discussing pricing and how you might charge one customer more than another. So I've always thought that like the confidential embarrassing emails being exfiltrated was a big motivator. I've heard from ransomware attackers, they often, if they find out the CEO or CISO or somebody's having an affair because they've monitored their email, that that will be used as an unofficial negotiating point with great success. Because these days in the Me Too days, you know, you can be fired, uh, not to mention the personal family repercussions of it being announced publicly that you're having an affair but again, I've read about a lot of people, a lot of companies not paying the ransom. I hear people always ask, you know, what percentage of companies pay the ransom? It's always varied. But I think, you know, most of the time for the last decade, it's been between 40 to 60 percent. Well, now I'm hearing that it's 40 percent or lower. And certainly there have been a lot of cases you know, famous cases or infamous cases where the victims did not pay the ransom. And again, the hackers almost always follow through on the public posting. And, you know, that data sometimes is quite confidential, right? They're posting psychiatry records of patient visits. They're posting, you know, trade secrets, emails, databases, customer lists. And again, you know, so what do I guess is going to happen? My guess is that Riot Games is not going to pay the ransom and that the hackers will follow through and post all of the source code and cheat codes and all that other stuff and that it will impact Riot Games in some way. I don't know how large, you know, but they're, you know, like I said, hey, we're going to post the anti-cheat code. So I guess that, you know, means that people that like to cheat in games may pay attention to that and try to find out how they can circumvent the anti-cheating mechanisms. But I think ransomware in general has had kind of a down year just by sheer number of people not paying, lower payments when people do pay, you know, certainly less high target. I haven't heard of anybody paying, you know, over a million dollars in a year or two. So I think, you know, the ransomware industry seems to have kind of peaked and I guess when I talk about ransomware 2.0 and how successful it's been, I think ransomware 2.0 has kind of peaked. I've talked about in the past ransomware 3.0 is this idea that these ransomware gangs, hacking games, will become these hack-all gangs, doing all kinds of things, doing you know, Bitcoin mining using your computers. They'll do business email compromise scams. Because they learn internal information about your company, they'll you know hack your customers and partner relationships. They'll possibly do encryption. They'll possibly take your data. They'll take your passwords and your employee passwords and your customer passwords and abuse them and resell them. So, I think the third iteration of ransomware is just this: Hey, we'll try anything we can, depending on what they find inside of the company, what they think they can get away with. And then the the ransomware 4.0 is this really automated 
artificial intelligence, AI bot, bad guys bot versus your good threat hunting bots and the best algorithm wins. I think that's where we all end up in about 10, 15 years is that the bad guy is just going to have this automated bot that tries to extract the most value that it can get by hacking the victim, you know, what it finds on the network. Right now, a lot of the hacking, once the initial intrusion has happened, is guided by human attackers. I think that that will increasingly be taken over by AI-aware bots. And again, trying to extract the maximum revenue, whatever that means. I think we're going to see less of these pays 10 million or we're going to release because I don't know anyone that's been threatened with something a large amount like that that has paid lately. Even again, to the great embarrassment of those companies and organizations. There's been police companies hit, you know, law enforcement where it released records and investigation information and confidential informant information. I mean, some really, you know, really embarrassing stuff. And again, these companies aren't paying. They're deciding that, hey, we'll take the pain, whatever it is. We're not going to pay the ransom and encourage ransomware. So that's what I think is coming out of this is that, you know, my best guess is Riot Games doesn't pay. Hacker releases the information. It doesn't damage Riot Games that much. And the hacker goes on to their next big target. Yeah, I agree. It'll just be kind of a blip on the radar for Riot Games, I'm sure, a moment in time. Like it was for Sony, like you were saying. And I remember all of that. Seth Rogen and James Franco made the movie The Interview, which I guess, you know, I watched the movie, but it painted Kim Jong-un in a bad light. And so you know what's funny is mad. <laughs> it was a horrible, horrible movie. And yeah, I would have never I, I would have never watched it except for I went, North Korea yeah. really cared about this movie. Let me go watch it. So I think that's I know. you know, one of those things like if you don't want more publicity for something, don't make larger publicity for it. I guess the North Koreans didn't know it because I mean, it was a horrible movie and nobody was... It wasn't good. Yeah, no one cared about it till they hacked it. And they was like, well, I got to see it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I like, you know, I mean, James Franco is not really uh, an acting anymore, but I, I like Seth Rogen. I like them in Freaks and Geeks. So I was thinking it would be entertaining, but it, it was it was not. The hype was not worth that hour and a half or whatever I lost. We lost. Um, anyway. Well, next topic for us, second of three topics. Again, last week, it seems like there was a busy week last week, but late last week, Forbes published an article about how there was a cybersecurity incident at the TSA where a Swiss hacker who, and I, I might not be pronouncing this correctly, but she goes by Maya Arsen Krimu. That's how I'm pronouncing it. And she was able to obtain the TSA's no-fly list via what she said was an exposed Jenkins server that belonged to Commute Air. After she was poking around for a while, she found that that server contained the file titled nofly.csv. And Forbes, in their title, listed this as a jackpot hack. And I guess, Roger, why would this be considered a jackpot hack? And what further details can you share on how Maya Arsen Krimu was able to access these servers and find this sensitive aviation data? I guess on the second question first is, you know, a, a lot of hackers just scan for vulnerabilities. There's lots of tools and websites and services where you can just scan the internet for common known vulnerabilities and have been for decades. And what do you want to say to all the organizations is, hey, you should be doing your scanning before a hacker. Like, you know, every single service, every public facing service should, you know, be scanned for vulnerabilities. It's crazy that you're allowing a hacker to do it. 
Uh, so that's the lesson learned there is make sure you scan for your vulnerabilities and misconfigurations. Number two, or the first question, you know, is it a jackpot finding? I don't know because I don't know the data. And let me say my sense is without knowing the data, I doubt it's the whole do not fly list. Maybe it is, but the do not fly list is very controversial. One of the biggest things is you can't normally find out whether you're on it and you have a very hard time getting off of that list and it's full of errors. Like one of the most error-filled databases ever. I know multiple people who are on the no-fly list only because their name matches some purported terrorist or somebody that's, you know, you can't fly because you beat people up or something like that. And, you know, it's kind of weird that they don't use more pieces of information. I've always felt since the very beginning, I'm all right with a no-fly list. You know, I think it's a good idea to try to prevent undesirables from flying. Uh, but, you know, there is a lack of transparency. You can't find out if your name is on the list or why it's on the list. And you have a very hard time getting your name removed from the list. It's a huge list. And all it does is grow. I don't know what the vulnerability is if somebody finds out about it, except for I guess you could find out who the U.S. government or the airlines thinks is a threat or a possible threat. But I don't know how that really compromises anything. But of course, I haven't seen the data and there might be people listening that can come up with threat models of how they think, hey, there could be this weakness or vulnerability or phishing attempt or something but I never thought that the database needed to be confidential. It always seemed to be a little bit overblown to me that it had to be confidential. So I don't know. It doesn't feel like to me like a jackpot. What are you going to do with it? You know, <laughs> I, I guess you could sell it to some foreign governments that would care to see if their spies and terrorists are on the list. But I assume they already know cause when your <laughs> spy or terrorist guy tried to get, you know, tried to fly. They're like, oh, you can't fly. You're on the no fly list. <laughs> so I was not as... Um, you know, this was not an Uber hack, so it didn't interest me. Someone just found a common misconfiguration vulnerability. And then, you know, what they got, it didn't seem to me to be a jackpot. You know, I guess it's exciting, you know, versus, you know, finding a list of somebody's favorite music files or something. But I don't think it's going to change anything. I, I don't even think it's the complete list. You know, someone told me, oh, I downloaded the database. It's probably this huge relational database, and it varies by entity that stores it. I mean, just because it says, you know, no-fly list or TSA list or whatever, it's probably some limited data extraction for that particular, you know, entity. You know, you know, you don't want people still in your confidential files. It's bad in that way. But again, the lesson to be learned is you should be scanning your own services. And that's even leads to kind of a larger point is, you know, when you have these Internet accessible points, especially cloud services, there was always this big fear that the cloud was going to bring a ton of new cloud vulnerability. So everything in the cloud essentially is susceptible to every single type of attack plus I guess, virtualization attacks, because most of the cloud stuff's virtualized. So it has every attack method that's possible in the real on-premises world, the virtual world, and then there's these additional cloud risks, like what's called multi-tenancy risk and shared storage risk and all this stuff that, you know, we all worried about. And now, you know, clouds have been pretty popular for about a decade now. And what we found out is that most of the exploits against cloud services are really the same things we saw on on-premises. Social engineering is the biggest part of the problem. It's stolen password credentials. It's misconfiguration, overly permissive permissions. It's kind of ironic that everybody was worried about the cloud and new cloud-based threats. And all that happened was that traditional threats also moved to the cloud. You know, and there are some 
virtual threats you have to worry about. There are some new cloud threats you have to worry about, but for the most part, they haven't become big threats. They are there, they exist, but they haven't been widely exploited. And then it brings up the question, why aren't we learning doing any better? You know, why didn't we take all the great security lessons we were supposed to learn in the on-premises world and move them to the cloud world? Instead, it just seems like we're just continuing to make the same vulnerabilities and same mistakes. And maybe that's just the nature of human nature and every new paradigm, we're going to have to relearn every single old mistake all over again. Like we are seeing the same types of attacks in the metaverse. We're probably going to see the same types of attacks in the new, you know, AI chat GPT driven world. I don't think we have to worry about the new modalities, you know, that us experts come up with as much as, hey, why don't you just, you know, concentrate on the stuff you're supposed to be concentrating on for decades? Definitely. I'm not a, an expert like you, but as I was reading through the article, it just seemed like the most, you know, potentially damning thing was that there's racial profiling in the no-fly list, which big surprise, not not at all, not at all surprise. I mean, I think that we would expect something along those lines just by nature of, you know, that's just, <laughs> you know, she's, I think that she said there are some IRA people on there. So there are Europeans, but you know, it is what it is, I guess. And to your point, yes, I think that those folks and those organizations, governments, whatever, probably know they're on the no-fly list. So probably not shocking. They're probably not even something they're looking for. <laughs> they probably don't care about that list at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, uh, you know, how can we confirm that it's a complete list, right? Again, it's a CVS file. I got to assume that the real TSA uh, no-fly list is like this huge relational database and it's going to be difficult, you know, and that someone's like, send me the TSA no-fly list. I, I just got to think that it's going to be pretty big to send as a CSV file. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I think you're probably right. Okay, well, final topic for us is you had posted that you had created an authentication strength hierarchy. You posted this on LinkedIn and you were, you know, asking, is there any feedback on this? You kind of brought things from weakest to strongest and then laid them all out there in a grid. And I'm curious if you heard any feedback from anyone and, you know, how you brought this together and anything else that went into putting together this hierarchy. Yeah, you know, I, so I created this because in my mind, I'm always thinking about, well, what's stronger? I talk a lot about MFA and hacking MFA, and I've always been a big promoter of you should use phishing resistant MFA. But implicit in that, I'm also talking about password lists and, you know, other things like FIDO pass keys and single sign on solutions and, you know, biometrics. And I thought, well, whenever I'm talking about, phishing resistant multi-factor authentication. I'm really talking about phishing resistant whatever, you know, because if it can be easily phished, eh, I don't like it. So I started creating this and I went, oh, I should add, you know, how does it all compare to passwords? How does it compare to pens and that sort of stuff? And let me say, it's a fool's errand. It's like trying to figure out the top 200 best vocalists of all time, like Rolling Stones did recently, to getting much criticism for everything they left out. But I said, hey, let me take and just put it on the screen. And I made a Visio chart, which uh, my good friend and coworker James McQuiggan is like, I can't wait to make this prettier. <laughs> He's like, I hope I'm not insulting you. I said, no insult at all. What you see, what I posted on my LinkedIn account, that Visio diagram, that's the best I can do. Just uh, not a visual, not not super visual. But I did want to say, okay, I'm going to put a line in the sand and say what's stronger or weaker. I'd done it in the past. I'd done just for multi-factor authentication. I'd done a chart the same way going, okay, you know, I think this sort of, of MFA is stronger than this sort and that sort. But I even went further. Like, so I included pens and knowledge-based questions 
you know, and pattern matching and, you know, authentication that's attached to your phone number. And so basically I said, okay, the strongest stuff is phishing resisting MFA, phishing resistant, passwordless, phishing resistant, multi-factor, passwordless, phishing resistant, multi-factor biometrics. So if you're multi-factor and phishing resistant, I think you're among the strongest types of solutions you can authenticate with. And I also added to it continuous assessment meaning that you don't just get authentication assessment during this one-time login at the beginning, but they're constantly assessing who you are. And that kind of points to these days, we kind of call that zero trust, maybe, you know, a term people more familiar with. And then I said, okay, if it's not phishing resistant, then I'm okay. The next level would be, okay, multi-factor authentication and multi-factor passwordless and multi-factor biometrics, meaning that, okay, if you can't have phishing resistant then the non-phishing resistant forms are okay to use next, even though I'd rather you use the phishing resistant forms. But I do want you to use multi-factors. Like there's a lot of passwordless options out there that are biometrics where you just, you know, does a facial scan or just does a fingerprint scan. And those are not as good as multi-factor. So I kind of said, okay, if it's phishing resistant, that's at the top. If it's multi-factor, but not phishing resistant, that comes next. And then the single factor solutions come next. You know, single factor sign-on solutions, single factor passwordless solutions, single factor biometrics, and even through in behavior-based authentication. Again, and that might be something that's used to continuously assess, are you who you say you are? It could be something like keystroke dynamics or something where they're measuring your keystrokes and how you type in your password or something. And then I said the weak factors are password, device ID, geometrics, which is kind of that are you logging in from the same city, using the same browser, that sort of stuff. And then single factor voice-based. I wanted to point out that voice-based authentication, which is actually growing in popularity, as far as I can tell, is actually not that strong. Although if it's paired with another factor like your phone number or your pen or a password or something like that, eh, then I, I like it better. And then at the very bottom, what I call the weakest factors for pens. And the reason why I say with pens is most people's pens are just four digits long. They're actually somewhat predictable and they're reused. And, you know, reusing a pen is like reusing a password just is not a good thing. Pattern matching, that would be like you moving your finger on the screen to different points on a picture to different, you know, numbers or something. That's pretty weak because I see kids like kids will see their parents putting in a pen or doing a pattern, you know, making like, you know, angles across the screen and they can go do it. Matter of fact, my wife was telling me that our grandson watched her putting a pen on her phone. I've been married to my wife for, you know, 25 years and I can never remember her pen. And I'm always having to go, what's your pen? Well, our grandson has the pen down and he's like, can I use your phone? I knew your pen. <laughs> or anything that's attached to your phone number. So that'd be like SMS-based. So I actually put SMS-based authentication below password because it's just too easy to move your phone number these days to another phone. And then log ID only, you know, that would be where you just like log on with a username or something. There's no password. And then knowledge-based questions like what's your mother's maiden name or what's your favorite car? I put that, you know, among the weakest factors. So I, I threw my line in the sand there. I have had a couple of comments already this morning and someone said, hey, you need to put the arrow in the other direction from, you know, go from weakest to strongest. I kind of had in the wrong direction. Somebody thought I should split up passwords between weak passwords and strong passwords. And eh, for this chart, I kind of consider passwords all to be kind of a weaker factor. 
And if you want to go stronger, you know, you'd have to go to like a 20 character password or 12 character perfectly random or something like that. I'm for sure that biometric vendors and behavior-based authentication vendors and passwordless vendors are going to yell at me is what I assume. Like when I say I like multi-factor passwordless over single-factor passwordless, most passwordless authentication is single-factor. And I think some of those single-factor passwordless vendors are not going to be happy with me. And let me say, I think you can mix and match you know, these things. Like if you have single-factor passwordless that's tied to a device ID you know, or something like that, then you know, it gives you increased strength. You know, that becomes multi-factor and kind of moves you up. But I was kind of like, you know, I've never seen this done before. Let me throw the line in the sand and we'll see. I'll get a lot of comments today and over the next couple of days. And I'm sure I'll update my chart or add something to it from that. Although it's funny, I did have a couple of people saying, oh, you need to make it prettier and change it this way. I'm like, I'm not that guy. You're lucky you didn't get it in the text file. <laughs> but I hope I'm adding to the understanding of what is good authentication versus weak authentication. And I'm going to follow that chart up the next day with what I think is the most popular attacks to the weakest attacks. So like social engineering at the top and unpatched software following it. And then what do I think is the least likely to happen attack? So I'm going to take and throw that line in the sand tomorrow. I've already made the chart. I'm just going to wait till tomorrow to post it. I guess I'm enjoying throwing the line in the sand, the gauntlet and seeing what happens. Yeah, very cool. And I'm glad that, you know, people are interacting with you on it, even though sometimes it's not always, you know, going to be reflected in how you update it, but it seems like a good way to prompt the conversation and, and build awareness like you're saying. So I think that's great. You're exactly right. Awesome. Well, Roger, we'll stay tuned on those updates. And then it was so much fun talking to you about those other two topics. And as always, I'm looking forward to next week. Me too. And thanks again for everybody for tuning on in each week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Roger. I'm Hillary McClure. Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. <laughs>